Welcome to Commons Groundswell, a podcast that examines human relationship with land through conversations with inspiring leaders, changemakers, and agrarian trust collaborators. Hi, welcome to Commons Groundswell. I'm your host, Natalie Ashker Sievers. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Shakira Tyler, board president of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and co-founder of the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund. We talk about ways the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund is addressing historical and racial land ownership disparities, building food sovereignty, and revitalizing Detroit's agricultural landscape. We discuss land justice as the foundation for social movements, the importance of building meaningful relationships, and the major transfer of wealth that has to happen to close the racial wealth gap and ensure everyone can thrive. Thank you, Dr. Tyler, for joining us. I am really excited to be talking with you today about rebuilding intergenerational land ownership for Detroit Black farmers. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I want to get to the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund, but first I'd, I'd love for you to just tell us about how you came to this work. Sure. And this work being very broad in terms of like Black farmers, food justice and food sovereignty, right? So it was partly intellectual as a college student um, and then also very personal and intimate as a mother. Um, So I'll I'll just start with my childhood. I grew up very drawn to just the natural environment around me, like growing up in inner city Philadelphia, um, always wanting to go hike in the forest and swim in the lakes and um, dig for worms and uh, loved animals, loved to volunteer at animal shelters and um, study wildlife. And so I've always felt a very strong inclination to, you know, what people will call the natural environment. And I studied agricultural sciences at uh, my home state land grant, Penn State University, um, because that's what my passion was, which led me to um, studying Black farmers, because I always felt, um, I was always wondering why I was the only Black person and one of the one of the very few Black people in my environmental science courses, biology courses, um, animal science, agricultural sciences, like just the gamut. Within the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources, um, there was very few students of color and even fewer Black students. And I was always really confused as to why that was. And so um, part of my journey was was this intellectual digging of why um, there are very few people that looked like me in these spaces. Uh, because I knew there was a, always a really strong connection between Black culture or Black communities, broadly speaking, and food and land and trees, soil, water, you know, but but it, all, it wasn't as visible. And so... I, I had a lot of questions and one of my mentors told me that I needed to do research to figure out why that was. And so I came to grad school in part to do research on that because I, um, I knew that there were 
there was a lot of information out there that could provide some insight as to what I was experiencing, you know, just as an individual um, living in the world and, and having a lot of questions at that time. And then also precisely around the same time, I became a mother. I was a very young mother at the age of 19 and I wanted a different lifestyle for my daughter than what I had. Um, and I, I so love my parents and my grandparents for raising me in ways that they did. And <laughs> I didn't have the best diet. So <laughs> I, I want to be very respectful um, and appreciative for, for how I got here. And also understanding that um, I didn't grow up eating lots of fruits and vegetables and just things that were more nutritionally dense than other things. And I definitely wanted my daughter to have um, a better relationship with her food than I did. Um, And so we started gardening um, at our student apartment um, on campus. And um, I was always taking her out to farms in the area um, and just really wanting her to build a healthy relationship with the land at, you know, as a baby, you know, starting at a very, very early age that I, that I feel like I didn't have, um, at least not very hands-on. Um, and so, yeah, my journey is sort of a merger between those two avenues, like the, the intellectual academic frame as a, as a college student and also as a mother desperately wanting um, my daughter to have a really divine relationship with the, with the food that she was eating in ways that I didn't. Mm-hmm. Right. I bet that's really fun to watch also, you know, as they grow and have a relationship with food maybe that's different than, than yours as a child. Yeah, it's <laughs> she. So she's fourteen now, and she, she, we joke. You know, she, <laughs> she's she jokes how she'll never eat yellow squash ever again because we grew so much of it, and we would eat it with every meal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because we had so much in our garden. Um, and so it, yeah, it's. I'm thankful that we've had that journey together, and if you ask her. Um, she would say that we could have done something different. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we don't know what we have until later in life. So Right. And that's what I keep telling her. I, I, I tell her about 20 years from now, she'll understand and um, she'll be thankful, hopefully. So, <laughs> All right. So what is the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund and how did it come about? The Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund was created to address the historical and racial land ownership disparities um, that currently exist on a national level, um, not just in Detroit, but the, the huge land disparities um, is, a, is a national problem that the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund is responding to. So we provide needed economical and political support to Black land stewards in the city of Detroit, and we're working toward the transformation of our communities through building food sovereignty and revitalizing Detroit's agricultural landscape. So Black Detroiters have poured so much into our communities by cultivating land we can't we can't afford to buy it often. And so we've we've reduced the persistent blight 
and dumping by taking responsibility for these abandoned pieces of our neighborhood um, without much government assistance um, or even philanthropic assistance, just very minimal resources. And um, we're alchemizing our very minimal resources into so much abundance by um, growing on land that's contaminated with lead, um, um, growing on land that has very minimal water access. And so we're, we're really creating these um, these food havens um, as a way to survive, as a way to preserve our culture, um, as a way to make money. Um, all of the reasons that um, people, particularly Black people, grow food, we're doing that um, because we feel like that's our responsibility responsibility to ourselves and our community. Um, and so we, we have the goal of feeding our community fresh, affordable, healthy foods that are not always accessible in what we call food apartheid. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about food apartheid? Sure. Yeah. So food apartheid is our chosen um, term to describe our reality as opposed to food deserts, which is depending on who you ask, a more common term because of where it came from and who tends to use it. Um, but food desert doesn't really, um, it doesn't accurately capture the strategic process of, of food injustices and food inequities as we currently experience them. Um, and there are several reasons that I'll outline briefly. So a desert is a vibrant ecosystem um, that is not always the, the, the vibrant essence of a desert is not always visible to the eye, right? You know, there's, um, a lot of life forms in the desert that thrives in that particular setting. Right. And so to call Detroit and other com communities of color that tend to be rural or cities, um, deserts is to assume that, there is no life. There is no nothing of value. There, um, the, it's it's a blank slate that needs to be um, transformed in a way that promotes what other people would consider a, a you know an asset or something that gives life, right? And so, because we currently live here and we've been doing this work of transforming our communities, we affirm that that's not the case. <laughs> right? Because uh, we're clearly eating, right? And so there is nothing about Detroit that is a desert. Uh, and we, we also resist the term food desert because it removes the agency and the, and the power that everyday people are using to um, respond to food insecurities and food injustices by growing on our lawns, in our backyards, on our windowsills, on our roofs, if we can, growing wherever we can um, to provide food for ourselves and our communities, um, because that's our duty, again, to feed ourselves. And the final, um, oh, and so before I move on, in relation to that specific reason, there's a lot of emphasis on, on grocery stores providing food, right? When grocery stores, supermarkets, I mean, these industrial food uh, spaces aren't the only sources of food. And so it's important to understand that um, food production and just 
how people relate to food happens outside of the capitalist system that has been constructed, right? And so we we talk about food apartheid because we understand that it's a strategic um, relationship between um, the powers that be, the racist capitalist system that was created to oppress us, essentially. And we're resisting that system every day with the tomatoes that we grow in our windowsills, even if it's just a handful of cherry tomatoes that we could put in our tomato sauce or top our salad with, that's more power that we have, that we didn't have previously if we had to go to the store to buy those tomatoes, right? And so inch by inch, we're taking back more of our power by understanding that we live in food apartheid and not a food desert and that Every little bit of, of food, even if it's just a handful of peppers or just a bowl full of spinach, we take back bits and pieces of our power in ways that we have to as we become less dependent on the systems that exploit us. If you could talk a little bit about the history of Black agrarianism in Detroit, even though I know that is, you know, we could talk about that for days, but specifically how it it relates to Black farmers and the relation or the instrumental role that that Black farmers have played in, you know, trailblazing this tradition of growing food in cities. Yeah, that's a really long, long, long history, <laughs> and I'll I'll be brief as I can. So I'll start with um, colonial times uh, around the 1700s. Ribbon Farms was the name given to the original land grants that were given by the French colonist Antoine Cadillac, and Antoine Cadillac is a huge name here in Detroit because. He's he's seen as one of the primary um, colonial people that um, basically made the city what what it is today in terms of the colonial process. Um, So Ribbon Farm grants were free um, as long as the grantee, whom were all white, of course, white men in particular agreed to fulfill certain rules and regulations. And because Detroit enslaved Africans during this era, it is highly prop it is highly probable that these farms were worked with the body and the intellectual labor of African peoples that were stolen from Africa um, starting in the 15th century. Then um, around the late 1800s, Hazen Pingree was the mayor of Detroit. Um, in the late 1800s and after the economic depression in 1893, he won public approval by opening empty lots to city farmers and people called them Pingree's potato patches. And this is often recognized as the first urban agricultural program in the nation. And many other cities began to follow suit. So this being 20 plus years after emancipation, after the emancipation proclamation and the pervasive practice of exploiting black labor, these potato patchers were more than likely worked by black people for extremely low wages, right? And so even before um, 
Black people became very visible in the agricultural landscape um, as landowners, we have always played a very significant role in the development of the agricultural landscape in the city um, during colonial times and you know, and so on and so on, because that that was the way of the world, which is still the way of the world. But, you know, black people traditionally have worked the land, whether either it was if it was for low wages or for um, no wages at all, because mm-hmm. that was that's the way the system is set up. Mm-hmm. And so moving more towards today, family gardens and side lots have become very common throughout the city, especially for black families. And this this legacy really started with Black migrants um, traveling from the South, starting around the 1920s and continuing throughout the 20th century. And it is also not a coincidence that historical radical Black organizations, such as the Republic of New Africa, RNA for short, and the Nation of Islam, that were founded in Detroit during the early to mid 20th century, prioritized purchasing land to build self-sufficient and self-determining black communities. So the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund and other black agrarian organizations in the city stand on these deeply rooted shoulders of using land and food as tools to fight oppression and actively build towards liberation. So this is not like happenstance. This is not just like a, a coincidental emergence. Like we are, walking the ancestral path of, of um, Black liberation by using food and land as strategies in that process. That was kind of my next question, but you, you basically just answered it. Um, my next question was, what, what role does land access and tenure playing play in transforming Detroit's food apartheid into a, a vibrant food sovereign e- ecosystem? Um, I don't know if you have anything to add. I feel like you kind of just answered that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can add a few more things. Um, so as I mentioned before, Black people have always been leading or co-leading agricultural development in urban areas and rural areas of urban areas like Detroit because it was often a matter of survival, cultural preservation, recreation, and all things in between. So land justice is often times the foundation to other justices like there is there really couldn't be education justice or food justice or housing justice if it's not for land justice as like the core of that work because when it comes down to it who owns the land who's controlling the land who's operating the land you know who's sorting the land you know all of these frameworks dictate what happens on the land Right. And so land justice is is the foundation to 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 really all social movement building to me. And intergenerational land ownership produces intergenerational wealth, which directly addresses the gross racial wealth gap. You know, there's like a 200 percent racial wealth gap between black and white families. Right. On a national level. And I know that um, it wavers between. Um, you know, as time goes on and it varies by county and it varies by uh, region and um, and all these other uh, circumstances. But across the board, that there is a huge racial wealth gap, um, which positions black families in. Um, in positions that that 
that causes us to not fare well economically, right? And so Black families have more power as urban landowners in the midst of industrial development and gentrification, right? It provides more security. It provides more political power, uh, provides more social and cultural capital and so on. And so with this power, we can develop self-determining food economies where we can own our land, grow our own food, market to our own communities, and cool the planet in the process because we're in a critical decade of needing to completely transform how food is grown, um, how energy is produced, and so on, so that we can cool the planet as rapidly as we can to make it livable for future generations. Right? And farmers are one of the the key or um, one of the key actors in that process because we capture carbon. From the, from the atmosphere and return it to the soil. I mean, depending on how you farm, but typically black farmers who are farming on very small levels in, in the city are using agroecological, um, agroecological practices in, in a way that works with Mother Earth instead of working against Mother Earth to, to produce the food that we eat. So all in all, we're building power by resisting the monopoly of the industrial food system while simultaneously building a cooperative regional food system that is grounded in our principles of African self-determination, Black liberation, um, cooperativism, share work and responsibility, like all of these things that we know um, build the world that we need to to not only survive, but thrive in. Yeah, I'm really inspired by, um, you know, that cooperative movement that Black farmers in particular really instigated, I guess you could say. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, so the Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund, it, you know, you guys do more than just support black farmers in finding land, but you provide other support and resources, um, you know, pulling your resources together as a community. Can you talk a little bit about why that is so important in terms of continued growth and success for your farmers? Yes. So we started providing infrastructure support because land was oftentimes the first hurdle. The, fir the first hurdle. Other needs such as water catchment systems, spigot installations, tool storage, and other things are important to successful farms as well. So we're beginning to provide funds for infrastructure development because land was just only the the first challenge, and many growers. Were, uh, were coming back to us saying that they needed support with these other, other things so that they can actually put the seed in the ground so that they can actually harvest it, sell it, or give it away, you know, depending on what their goals were. And so we're also providing, uh, beginning to provide funds for professional development so that growers can attend conferences, enroll in classes, and other kinds of uh, personal development processes that are related to their goals and objectives. And so, as I said before, land is the foundation, but it's never just about land. Land is the catalyst that unfolds to other needs and opportunities. And we know due to systemic racism, sexism, and classism, and then some, that our communities are in deep need of so much support, right? And not just financial support, but emotional support, uh, cultural support, right? Like the system has completely stripped away all of the pillars that that hold... Um, that hold certain structures in place so that we can actually have some kind of retainer to exist within. And so we're assembling 
this, you were assembling these pillars that have been stripped away over the, over centuries, really, not just decades. You know, people think that this is a new thing. This is a centuries long fight, a centuries long movement. Um, and so we're creating this container because no one else will. And and we, we're doing it with very minimal resources, um, without much government support. Uh, and um, but most importantly, we're doing it with the support of our community. Right. And so, you know, this this land fund came together, you know, as a coalition between three different organizations in Detroit. Can you talk a little bit about that power of collaboration and how this kind of, uh, you know, forward thinking action is sort of the the way towards transformation? Yes. So, you know, the saying, if you want to go quick, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. So that's that's the spirit that we're moving within, right? Like we want to go far and deep, so we have to go together. Like there is no other option. It's very difficult work. It's it's much easier to move as an individual, especially because that's the way our society is set up. Like individualism is one of the 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 more visible characteristics of white supremacy culture. And so we're not only just um, we're not only just growing food and helping farmers and um, um, building towards food justice and food sovereignty. We're, we're doing that in tandem with fighting white supremacy culture. We're creating new new work cultures and, and ultimately new societies that are more aligned with with what we consider to be optimal ways of relating to one another. So that's about collaboration. That's about collectivity. That's about cooperativism. Like all those C's are what keeps the work going. And there's um, a proverb that we hold very dear to our hearts um, because it's it's a reminder of, of why we do this work. Ubuntu is a South African Zulu proverb, which means I am because we are. Like there, there is no separation between you and I, right? Like if you are in trouble, I am in trouble. If I am in trouble, you are in trouble. And so that's that's the essence of, of why we collaborate because we can't be good if our neighbor isn't good. Right. And so when we work together, we can more firmly understand the intimate connections between the conditions of our lives, experiences and struggles as we work towards liberation like that, in fact, is liberation. Um, And so it's essential to uncover the invisibilization of the grassroots infrastructure built upon relationships, trust and deep mutual accountability that precedes any grant or institutional support. Right, that just just relationships forming um, deeply reciprocal, accountable, trusting relationships is probably the most powerful thing you can do within grassroots movement building. Because when it all comes down to it, when everything is said and done, it's it's really about the relationship. Like how, what relationships have formed and what relationships are sustained and, and how we do that. Um, and again, because we don't have any other option, like we're strong, we're stronger together than we are um, apart. And so we do this because we have no other options.
whenever we talked last, you mentioned that this work isn't just about like eating more kale. And and I'm wondering how that connection to land and growing food moves individuals, moves communities towards liberation and healing. So there's so much, there's so much to be said about that. Land is much more than just a means for creating wealth. It's it's also it's an anchor of identity, belonging, security, health, culture, like all all of these things that I believe every human being is aching for today, right? Like we're living we're living in in within a society that is literally making us sick, not even just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And the whole back to the land movement, land reclamation, um, land justice is about centering land within these multifaceted frames. It, It just can't be about food production because then that retreats back to the industrial notion that land is to be used for our benefit. We can continue to rape the land of all the nutrients to produce um, food and fiber for human consumption as if the land isn't an autonomous spirit in and of herself, right? And so rebuilding our relationship and our intimate understanding of land and how land informs our lives and how our very lives would not be what they are if it wasn't for the land, right? And I'm really trying hard to not sound too cliche, uh, but that's that's as real um, as, as I can make it. And so reclaiming the theories and the practices of the village are, are deeply connected to how we think about land, particularly within Black agrarian frameworks. So as I mentioned, we're all dying from a lack of community, um, because of the society that we live in. Um, and so this dying from a lack of community that that um, society is strategically constructing has to be has to be encountered with how we reconnect not only to each other, but how do we reconnect to land? And I really love um, this book, Welcoming Spirit Home by Saban Fusome from the Dagara tribe of Burkina Faso. And she talks about the goal of community as the process of forming a diverse body of people with common goals and empower them to embrace their own gifts, selves, and nature. And community holds space for all of its members to work at becoming as close to their true selves as possible. And and that really resonates with me because to me, that's the essence of the work. Like how do we how do we heal ourselves from these toxic cultures that we've been forced to live within and how do we and how do we center land in that process right and so the colonization of our food system that that has produced these very violent inequities within the food system and beyond has diminished our sense of community and so re reviving what we would call the village, not only in theory, because there's a lot of things that we just talk about theoretically, but we don't know how to do practically, but like tangibly, materially reviving the village um, so that community, belonging, um, family, like all of these things are intact, I think takes us much farther along than than where we are now, right? So again, it just, it just can't be about growing local food, selling at local farmers markets, you know, uh, 
reviving local economies through sustainable agriculture, like all of these notions <laughs> that I would consider to be very um, coming from a very dominant viewpoint, particularly white middle class communities is just not the deal. And I, <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Like it's, it's so inadequate and it, and it, it misses the mark in terms of, in terms of what's really happening on the planet today, like raging wars, forest fires. Um, yeah. Just racial killings, pandemics, like just the world is literally on fire and the solution cannot just be to grow and eat more kale. I just don't understand. I don't understand how how that can in good spirit be offered as like the quintessential response. So um, all in all, like to touch to touch back on um, the sense of community, it requires us to work together in cooperation and trust and with gratitude for everything that has brought us together. And so recreating strong knit communities and doing the work of building authentic communities anchored in spirit is harder than it sounds and requires us to unlearn the colonial and Western mentalities and behaviors that keeps us imprisoned to the very things we are fighting against. So this is the part that often gets ignored in strategies and solutions. Like how are we healing ourselves from the pieces of the oppressor that have been planted deeply within us, as Audre Lord, Black queer feminists would say. Like we are all affected by white supremacy systems. Um, and so we have to work really hard to do something different, to to counter the culture that we've been planted within. And, and for me, in my experience, and for people that I choose to be in community with, one of the first steps we do is to reconnect with land and and reconnect with each other on land in ways that illuminate um, the spirituality of the work in ways that that, that illuminate our um, ancestral reverence of the work and and just really and just really hold each other in ways that the land has modeled for us continuously through generations through centuries through all of the um, social atrocities that have been committed in the world, the land has held us. And so we we are being taught every day how to hold each other by what the land does for us. Wow. I know that was like really a long answer. And I, <laughs> I hope I, you know, didn't go around a corner just to get next door. <laughs> no, it was all important. It was all really important. There's so much, you know, I love what you're talking about how, you know, we're like born into this culture and it's like, it's so, we're so entrenched in it. And, you know, how do we see beyond these sort of superficial surface level seeming responses? And, and how do we go deep? I mean, I'm so inspired by your community and, you know, how you guys have come together you know, like you say, out of necessity. So I'm wondering what role reparations play in all of this. You talked about that shocking, you know, that we, that shocking disparity of wealth. 
Yeah, that's um, thank you for asking that question. So, w- what it comes down to is the major a major transference of wealth because of the the undebatable realities of stolen land and stolen labor that has dictated how we live our lives today. If we are going to even begin to transform life as we know it for the better so that um, so that everyone can have what they need to not only survive but thrive in the world, there has to be a major transference, transference of wealth. And that could be in the form of money. That can be in the form of infrastructure. Um, that could be in the form of service. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we can conceptualize what reparations or restoring um, or repairing the harm that was caused um, to people of color in particular, and to be even more specific, Black and Indigenous peoples here in this land, um, on this land, on Turtle Island. Um, we we ha- We cannot avoid that. There is, we have no more time. And I think um, we often think that reparations is some it's, uh, like some um, far off utopian solution. Oh yeah, we'll get there in fifty years. This is not the time, and this is what they said back in the nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies, and even before then. Um, but we we've 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 arrived at a moment where we are literally out of time. Because if we don't transfer wealth in the form of land and other resources back to the people who it belongs to, um, there will no longer be a planet here for anyone to live on. So reparations to Black communities throughout the African diaspora is essential. Reparations to Indigenous peoples of Turtle Island, including but not limited to the re- the rematriation of land, is all essential. Like this is this is an unavoidable response and. Um, I think it really falls into what it means to to do radical work. Angela Davis talks about the definition of radical being to grab by the root. And I don't, I don't think many people are prepared to talk about reparations because we're not grabbing by the root. We want to continue to put band-aids on harm that was caused because it's easier. Right. And I'm, I'm re- I think about this a lot. Like, how do we get to a point where people can understand that doing the difficult work that is needed to, to truly transform, like holistically transform our world, um, is 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 going to be much harder, right? But it's it's the necessary work that we need to do, and reparations is a part of that. So it's going to be uncomfortable. Is yes, it's going to be disrupting, and that's where we are. Um, that's where we are in in life at the moment. <sighs> mm-hmm. Right, it definitely yeah. feels like we're out of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and there are beautiful examples of what that looks like. Um, there's a whole um, like a whole movement of white people that are beginning to. Um, donate their stock bonds to black nonprofit organizations doing work within their, you know, value system. 
Um, there's white people completely handing over land to black communities for food and farm projects and other projects. I mean, so, so what's happening and I, and I really need people to under, particularly white people to understand that this is, this is not like some abstract idea. This is not a spectator sport. This is not, um, Again, like a utopian thing that's going to come a hundred years from now. This is happening now, today, right this second. And so, either hop on board, participate in what is going on, or or none of us will benefit at all. Yeah, Agrarian Trust has received some pretty incredible land donations. Um, I mean, and obviously, you know, monetary donations too. That that land will be put into the hands of people of color. So there's so many ways that that we can all participate in the reparations efforts. So how can we specifically help and support your organization, Detroit Black Farmer Land Fund? How can we help you? Donating money is a huge, huge help. We currently have our fundraising campaign that is... Um, that is live and accepting donations at the moment. And we have the goal of raising $80,000 before the end of the season um, so that we can award more farmers with land um, and infrastructure awards so that they can sustain themselves as, as businesses and organizations and so on. Can you tell us the, uh, the website for that? We'll put it in the show notes as well. It is www.detroitblackfarmer.com slash donate. And we also appreciate you sharing our story. Please share our website. Um, we have a ton of resources on our website that can also be shared. Um, we have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram. Share our posts. Um, the more we share our story, the more we clap back to the narratives that we don't exist because there are people that still believe that black farmers aren't fighting for a more just system. Like it's some kind of like fictional narrative. It's really, really interesting. So the more you share our story, the more um, visibility we have. And we believe that that visibility will translate into more financial support and, and so on. I and mean, that's what ultimately what we need to continue to do the work. Right. So check out their website, donate, share, follow them on social media. Um, we'll include all that information in our show notes. So thank you so much, Dr. Tyler. I really appreciate your time and I really enjoyed talking to you today. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate you making the time to, to chat with me and, um, it was, um, a really insightful conversation for me to have with you. <laughs> and I, I appreciate you continuing to share, uplift our story and um, support us in all the ways that we envision. Thank you. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Calliopeia Foundation, supporting organizations and initiatives that reconnect ecology, culture, and spirituality. Learn more about our work at agrariantrust.org.